0: Here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned. Immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we'd love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the photographer, writer, and musician. It's the one and only Ali Smith who was in a, a New York punk band in the 90s called Speedball Baby and has just written her memoir about this experience and it's titled The Ballad of Speedball Baby, which is available from all good bookshops and also online. This was uh, published in January 2024, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Ali, it's over to you.
1: I mean I'm I was born 69 so I you know in musical years it's like dog years right like if you're like 2 years later you're like oh well that you're in a whole another scene right yeah. so of course I came to all that stuff and loved it but it wasn't my formative stuff but what was really my formative stuff was like a combination of stuff that was coming in on this um sort of alternative radio station in new york called wdre and they were bringing in all stuff from england they were bringing in the jam soothing the banshees you know um just everybody that i loved and uh, grew to really love and it was like cracking my head open and they were also playing the stuff that was going on down at cbgbs but i was too young to be there you know it wasn't like one of those cool kids that got to go to cbs at 12 or 11 or whatever and um and that was, of course, Blondie and the Ramones and all this. So it was just bringing me a lot of information, even even to the point of like bringing in the exploited and bringing in, you know, harder punk bands, uh, Sham 69, Stiffle Fingers, all this stuff. So it was like a heavy dose of information very quickly. And uh, Iggy Pop, Raw Power was one of my first albums that really
0: did oh, it for me yes raw power yeah. that was the, i think that was the tour that i saw him at the uea actually doing that I mm. think, and someone said steve jones was on guitar but i'm never sure if that's quite right actually but does that have a track called oh, i might be wrong actually I, I i get high on you on is that one it was at a lateral it was about 86 87 i saw him
1: i don't, I don't remember that track on it i mean i remember search and destroy raw oh, power which the yes. very it was very raw you Hence the name. But the whole thing was just so immediate, you know, and so New York.
0: Very New York. So then. So did you. I know because I've been reading your book. So interesting. So your parents, did they have any kind of influence on you kind of musically or culturally?
1: Well, I mean, my dad was a classical musician, but he also did and he recorded an album with uh, Jacob Druckman, who was an avant-garde composer, or he was a composer who did an avant-garde album, which is just like sort of like, you know, like very out there uh, in the 60s. And my dad was on that album, but he was really a classical musician. And um, we don't have any connection through music. Sadly enough, he and I, um, he's not really interested in popular music or my version of music. So, but one thing that he did do for me, which was a real gift is when he was playing with the Metropolitan Opera band, you know, in the Mm -hmm. orchestra, he decided he wanted me to know what it would feel like to be inside the music. And so I was quite young. Um, I don't even know how, like nine or something. I'm not even really sure. There's a picture somewhere, but I don't know where it is. And like, he waited until the orchestra, you know, the conductor tapped the baton. And then he opened this little, it was at Lincoln Center in New York. He opened this little, uh, door on the side of the stage. And I scurried out and sat on a chair next to him, like between him and the timpani drum. He played bass trombone, right? And, um, and I just and the music just like there was nothing anybody could do about it because they were all in, on the go. You know, it was like five, four, three, two, one. And the the swelling of the music around me and the sort of like oneness of people making music together and enveloping you that left quite an impression. Yes. So even though he didn't relate to anything I did in music, I felt like he gave me that gift. And I would say that they both gave me the gift of getting out of my way. <laughs> like, even if they weren't really interested, they didn't ever suggest that you can't do something creative. Right. That's all yes. I, that's all I ever did. You know, all I ever did was creative stuff, so.
0: <laughs> so what was your first gig you ever went to? Where was the first concert apart from that one?
1: Um, you know, I it must have, I, I don't have a strong memory of a first gig because quite young at like 16 uh, my boyfriend and I would go to these hardcore matinees in at CBGB's on the right. Bowery in New York. And it was an all ages thing, you know, um, and everybody would go and get drunk outside in the hot sun. And like there was a flop house, an SRO upstairs. So there was like a combination of young drunk punks on the street and then like men down on their left just trying to get through the crowd to get upstairs. And It was Quite a scene, you know. And New York on the Lower East Side was pretty intense and and um, rough and ready. So, but we would go every Sunday and just see like Chrome Mags, Bad Brains, uh, Warzone, like just tons of explosive hardcore bands so that's how I kind of remember first going to to see bands you know it was super male (laughs) super testosterone
0: driven yes so with the the sort of this would have would this be in the mid-80s at this stage in life because you would have been about 15 in sort of 80 85 wouldn't you
1: yeah, it was mid 80s, so, mid and late 80s. So did you,
0: did the, the indie, I'm obsessed with indie pop from the 80s. Um, so did, the, did any of that indie pop stuff sort of come into your consciousness at this stage?
1: Specifically,
0: well, think, yes. I, was, I, was, I suppose you know, you have that punk world of sort of um, 77 from 76 to sort of 78, and then post punk, and then you have a few bands like you know, Tears for Tears, U2, mm. Minds, but then 83, the Smiths come along. My god, the Smiths, and there's oh, a yeah. five year period with, with you know, most bands have a five year narrative, you probably gathered, um, and and suddenly <laughs> the Smiths are there, but you would have been there in that kind of sensitive possibly writing poetry moments sort of flailing <laughs> with Morrissey, or you might have been listening to Bad Brains and uh, I don't know extreme noise terror but all, all uh, sort of conflict or anyone anyone like that so it's kind of yeah you're either a sensitive little poet or just you know wanted to goblet someone and punch someone.
1: Well I had I, I mean if I may venture a guess I think I had some bizarre combination, you know, like probably most people of the two, you know what I mean? Like I had big chips on my shoulder and, uh, a lot of anger and, um, and it was very cathartic to be into cro or bad brains, but I always felt like I had like an embarrassingly sloppy big heart and easily wounded so you know like most of us i think most of us were sensitive artists really you know i don't want to speak for everybody but so like the outward appearance was quite tough i can handle anything i'm gonna you know take anything on i want to prove i can do everything the boys can do and on the inside i think i was super angsty and i loved the smiths you know i know it's not a very popular decision now but um (laughs) I right. certainly did love The Smiths. I love Depeche Mode. I remember <laughs> listening to Blasphemous r- Rumours on loop, Do you know, like the Suicide Song, and just being like, oh, 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 it's speaking yes. to me. You know, it's just, uh, yeah, those are great. So when you mentioned yeah, the
0: CBGBs, there's also Max's Kansas City, and I guess the was the Mud Club also around at that stage as well?
1: Did you I to- just missed those. I just missed those. I caught the Peppermint Lounge. Did I you caught go to... The,
0: Danceteria.
1: I knew you were going to say Danceteria. I went <laughs> once and it was on its way out. So it, I really did miss that stuff. Um, right. But it, that- it loomed large. Like those li- those names always loomed large in New York music, you know.
0: Yes. So then when you got to 16, at the, you know, in the UK, you know, one can leave school or you stay on to 18 and go to A-levels mm-hmm. university. What happens to you at 16? Do you stay on for college at that point?
1: Well, I personally made the very questionable decision to move my whip dog of a boyfriend into my mother's house with us. Um, It was just me and my mom at that point. And he was a hot mess and, you know, a punk and all this stuff. But like in the truest sense of the word, you know, just really uh, literally and figuratively beat on by some really dysfunctional parents, drug dealing father. And I was like, yes, please. (laughs) <laughs> I can fix it, you know how like people do and uh, brought him in and that poor woman man she would my mom would go to work as a nurse and work her ass off and like come home and we'd be blasting music and like painting a mural on the wall and other stuff and it just kind of it kind of just reached a fever pit, fevered pitch where she's like if you're going to do it you got to do it on your own so we moved out I'm very young. Uh, I think 17 Right. Um, and so the two of us moved out and I did finish high school and then my mom was a nurse at NYU hospital and I could go to NYU which is an Ivy League school for free because in those days they would let you go for free and she's like please just go and I was like yeah mom I've got a life in progress and but I tried out I got in and I did go to NYU and then I quit to go on tour. And then I went back and then I quit and I went back, I finally finished it. So she was so relieved. She just she's like, I just want to leave this job. Yes, <laughs> so well, was, absolutely. You know, yeah. yeah. So, when, so sort of
0: 89, you're 20 at this stage. God, I'm really doing the maths mm, here. Doing so this...
1: math, thank goodness. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so, yeah. So then, yeah, Seattle, the grunge scene. Did that sort of impact on your life at all?
1: You know, I like a real dickhead. Um, I did this with Amy Winehouse, too. I didn't want to know anything about Nirvana until Kurt Cobain died. And, right. you know, that was just sort of what it was. You know, it was like, oh, alternative rock BS, because they sure sold it like a pile of crap, didn't they? You know, it was just so nauseating, that whole grunge rock, blah, 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 in the media. So I just didn't want to know, you know. And then when he died, I was like, oh, my God, they're fantastic. They're wonderful. I'm such a snob. Um But the way that that directly affected my band, Speedball Baby, which I was in at that time, early to mid-90s, was that every little label was looking, or sorry, every big label was looking to sign the next Nirvana, like the one they couldn't see coming, you know, the underground band that they had no real access to. So they started going through smaller labels to see who was cool. And, uh, you know, Fort Apache was a label in Boston that had done, you know, the people that end up bringing us in, Speedball Baby, into that scene, getting assigned to MCA Records, producing our major label album, were Paul coldery and Sean Slade. And they had done Holes, Live Through This. They had done a lot of tracks and albums for uh, Pixies, Radiohead, Lemonheads, Juliana Hatfield. They're great, they're fantastic.
0: The, all the greats, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it was, so, yeah. it, it, it was kind of interesting because John Peel, who was the DJ that we all loved during that yeah. period, I mean, he played a couple of compilations called, I think, oh, yes, yeah, Sub Pop 100 and then it was Sub Pop 200. And that was when yeah. we just found, you know, the the I suppose that was the Bleach albums from Nirvana. And there was also people like Tad on it, and, you know. And so so there was a great double bill at the the Norwich Arts Centre with Tad and Nirvana playing. Nirvana mm. was sort of the support band as well, which was quite boggling, really. So mm. that was quite... That was quite something. But then you also had 4AD records where it had the Throw Muses and the Pixies on as well. But then with any scene, the, the initial, like, wow, that's amazing. Then you get all the dreadful kind of grunge acts. And there was always these these men in sort of Czech, Czech shirts weren't swigging Jack Daniels talking about their problems with their stepdad. And it was a little bit boring, wasn't it? They all sounded the same. Jesus. It's,
1: yeah. Yeah. Totally it did. That's why it became so, you know, like a blur of alternative and gr- grunge. Those terms just became a blur of like a nauseating blur of mediocrity. You know, yes. that's the way it presented. Whereas end, end, in...
0: Ending with sort of Woodstock 99, which was not a good festival to go to, was it? Yeah,
1: interesting, <laughs> right? Really interesting. They just did a, didn't they do a documentary? Is that what I watched about that yes. one? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was
0: like going to a war zone, wasn't it, really? Yeah. It made... <laughs> there was no pixies and fairies and sort of ley lines. It was all hardcore. Bloke. Yeah,
1: yeah. And more ultimate than those. Yeah. Yes, um, it made Ultimate yeah.
0: look quite easy, actually. Then, <laughs> yeah, so how does the band form then? How do you sort of all meet each other?
1: Right. Well, I was living on the Lower East Side um, uh, with a bunch of people that were, a bunch of guys that were in a different band. And they had met Matt Verderay, who's the guitarist in Speedball Baby, who also was in Matter Rose before that, and um, and then went, became uh, was in Heavy Trash with John Spencer after Speedball Baby. And um, he's also my best friend of 30 years and and has recorded so much incredible music in this studio that he built on the Lower East Side in his apartment at a time when it was a very rough area. So they just took me over for a party and Matt and I just were like kindred spirits. I don't know. We sort of recognized in each other like a spark of determination to... um, make life into something you'd really want to live, you know. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. And you,
0: Were you familiar with recording studios in New York? I say that because there was one called, we still going, Martin B.C., Martin B.C. Studios. There was a really good documentary. It where they had a lot of bands like The Swans, you know, recorded there and early Sonic Youth and people like that. That's kind of all. There's a good film you could, you know, I'll send you that. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, yeah. So anyway, yes, so this is your. Yeah. Uh,
1: Dude. I mean, we just, those are my early days, but it just became, we recorded everything out of Matt's studio, New York Head Studios. It's still going, it's not in his apartment anymore, but so many people came through there, like, you know, Mick Collins from the Gories, Eugene Hutz from Gogo Bordello, all the guys in the blues, Explosion, like, it was a big scene of people coming through making music in the nineties at New York head on Ridge street. And that's where we recorded all our stuff, except for a few tracks at Fort Apache in Boston. So, but when I met Matt, I just started hanging out there all the time and he had beautiful instruments. He had, he had funded the whole thing in this. Uh, I won't tell the story cause it's a spoiler from my book, but it's a pretty, it's a story that can only happen in New York and it involves Jean-Michel Basquiat. Um, But anyway, he funded the studio. So there were beautiful instruments everywhere, the echoplex, you know, um, vibraphone, keyboards, drums, guitars, Gretchen, all these beautiful, and we just played all day and all night and just found sounds. And then Ron Ward, who was the singer for Speedbop Baby, um, came into the scene and and, uh, came into our scene. And they started this sort of confrontational sort of performance arty thing around his spoken word and psychosis of saying yes. <laughs> and uh and i entered into that cautiously and it just it gelled it worked
0: there was quite a lot of um did you ever read another guy's book called eugene robinson who was in sort of oxbow because he's quite psychotic no Oh god. No. no extreme. Um but um quite intense guy. So yeah that that whole sort of New York there was just having sort of done quite a lot of interviews. It does seem like a very intense time. Was drugs were drugs a major thing at that stage in the band or around the band?
1: Drugs were a major thing, not for me. I was never, I was always, I remember literally being in a room with about 30 people after a show and every single person in the circle around me coming around to me like a wave in a stadium was doing coke and um, I was just not the person who was going to do it for whatever number of reasons. And um, the fact that Matt supported me in that also bonded us, but it was definitely around, it was definitely a real burden for our singer you know, um, as it is for many people. Um, yeah, it was a subject, uh, of his writing and his focus, not just, uh, sort of like a, a love of, but also like, um, you know, the, the dance that you do with addiction, which is very painful and, and, um, shameful and all these things. He, he's a brilliant, uh, expresser of, uh, the human condition.
0: Right. Yeah. Jeezy, crazy. That's not good, is it, really? So, but then MCA, is this where you meet this guy called Dollar Sign?
1: Who's Do- Oh, Dollar Sign. <laughs> oh, um, yes. I left his name out. I did know his name, but I left it out because, you know, He's got a lot of money. I don't, I don't want him to take umbrage. Um, yeah, I only met him that night when he and Paul Coldery, who was our producer for the MCA album, took us out for a celebratory dinner to the Odeon, which was a very swank place in Tribeca, New York. And, you know, we walked in and I was swaggering in and Dollar Sign had his credit card out. He had a reputation for spending on the company card. And it just felt like... I know we were supposed to pretend that we didn't want to arrive, whatever that meant, but yes. it felt like we had arrived in a way. Uh, it all went horribly wrong in a, in a story that you can read in the book. But, um, and I left drenched in water and with my head facing the ground.
0: <laughs> yes god that must have been hard it must have been hard at that time because it was still quite a i mean it probably still is but during the 80s and 90s and well in the 70s and 60s it was not easy being a woman in in the music industry was it, it was...
1: no i think i mean our labels were still saying things like oh we've already got a woman on the roster this season or you know like we've got a woman on the bass," or the just nonsense you know and then you'd have bands that Came up like the Lunatics or L Seven. They were all women, and that was purposeful and good for them. Babes in Toyland, all these, um, all these important bands that were pushing against that, but it was still compartmentalized. You know, you still had to decide that, like, you were going to be part of this that was pushing against it. It wasn't just like um, into. It wasn't in- integrated. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, it was very male. I mean, think of all the bands that you've seen over the years. When you were younger, particularly, how many women were on the stage?
0: It's um, not good, is it, really? Joan Armatrading. I don't know. Um,
1: I'm trying. I'm trying to think.
0: Here. Like, Are
1: you trying to? Yeah.
0: I'm trying to think. Yeah. Michelle Short, um, Suzanne Vega. Yeah, there's not. There's a lot. three. I, yeah, there's, there's three. three. There's three or four. But oh. then, yes, yeah, so, and but I suppose we did have that slightly, I suppose, indie twee, you know, world of Sarah Records that came along in the late '80s. That sort of. You know, it was I suppose it was the Marine Girls and the Raincoats, wasn't it? And then they had sort of had Amelia Fletcher, who was kind of in Heavenly and Tallulah Gosh. So there was a little bit of a scene, but then, you know, it was like put in another category, wasn't it? That that kind of world of, um, yeah, sort of more sensitive, much more acoustic, whereas the Riot Girl thing, again, was just another sort of marketing concept, really, wasn't it?
1: Well, I don't think it started out that way, but as most things... Um, you know, systems don't like actual revolt. So you know, Riot Girl was an actual revolt. And um, the language around these things, like feminism has to be reductive and it has to somehow turn it into like something smaller than it is. And to push against and say, I'm standing here in my underpants, you know, uh, screaming into a mic, you know, the slits did it. it's it's really, controversial it's really jarring for people and people like to reduce it down by saying oh it's just this it's just that i mean it's sad that it was so compartmentalized music scenes are kind of compartmentalized you know but i mean liz fair's exile in guyville was a really important album for me in the 90s not just me obviously but like um and i would venture a guess like the stuff she was writing about like basically um total aversion to intimacy and being used sexually and all this stuff. It was all what we all went through, you know, yes. God. and it was raw and it was perfect actually, but I would really be curious and I'm sure she's talked about it, how great her experience in the music industry was while she was putting that out. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure she was still like, they're trying to tart her up or like turn her into something else or make sure she's not too angry or whatever nonsense she just made one of the best albums in the 90s and then i'm sure that was the narrative nobody to my knowledge ever suggested i change anything but maybe that's because they never thought we were going to be big anyway or they knew i wouldn't have listened i don't know
0: yes when you signed for mca was it just for one record at that stage
1: It was, I believe, a two-record deal. And then they decided to drop everybody that was on Fort Apache because they didn't know what to do with anybody. They had had gotten all these cool bands that um, had a following that they didn't really understand or really care about, and they were just going to see, you know, what happened. And they decided, nah, not into it. We weren't getting Nirvana out of it. So they dropped everybody, and we were like, uh hello we've got a contract you know like we weren't we weren't as dumb as they (laughs) wanted us to be and uh they and they literally they said the legal equivalent of we think you've done pretty well for yourself already and we said well here's our lawyer he'll decide And he got us a payoff. So he got us, we were the only band to get a payoff to leave. But I do think that we owe them like a million dollars or something. I'm not really sure. (laughs) Spoiler, they're not getting it.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, I know. um, Yeah, that's quite amazing, isn't it, really? But I suppose, is this the time when Napster starts to appear and sort of illegal downloading is the sort of, I think there was a brilliant documentary by, was it Jimmy Iovine, who was talking, Hmm. the guy who was, Bit of a mover and a shaker in that period, mm. and everything was going well, the money was just rolling in, everything was brilliant. And then suddenly it was like, Oh, I think we've got an issue, and everyone was going, no, Don't worry, Jimmy, it's gonna be fine. It's like, No, we've really got an issue coming, and then it's like, Oh, yeah, we have, oh dear, the money's stopped, hasn't it? So it was kind of a difficult time for the record industry, really.
1: Well, um, I mean. Boo-hoo, a difficult time for the... No, I mean, like, who gets screwed on both ends of that equation? Napster and the record industry, the artist always gets screwed. So, you know, like, if the record industry suffered, it doesn't necessarily trickle down to um, whether or not they treat good acts better. Do you know what I mean? They're still in the 90s. I don't know how it is now, but in the 90s, there was plenty of money. I mean, they were throwing money away when we got to the L.A. office of MCA. They were throwing hand over fist to take us out to the lunch, you know, like a silly lunch. Like that's just one, you know, I, um, I didn't believe in Napster. I did think it was stealing from artists, um, but it wasn't because they were going to undermine the record industry as a whole, which has been stealing from artists from its inception. Yes. You know what I mean?
0: This is true. This is true. So how does the band feel and then pick themselves up to do the next album? You know, how did you sort of all cope with that as a as a group? Because often bands have a real issue when they're trying to do the second album. Often the first album is a bit the honeymoon period, isn't it? And everybody's <laughs> quite happy. And then the sort of the second album where things can be a bit better because everyone knows what they're doing. So um, so when you were doing is it uptight your your second album that comes along?
1: It's, I think that was, I actually just wrote this down today, so I should remember it, but it's, um, I think that might have been before cinema, Um, but we... Kind of thought it was going to explode. So, I mean, you know, it wasn't going to work. I, I had high hopes, but Matt had already been in a band called Matter Rose, yes. and they were real darlings of the '90s. You know, they were a great band, very different to Speedball Baby. But he'd already been like courted and had bl- uh, smoke blown up his ass by you know record industry, and and um, so he was more like, let's just take what we can get, do the best with it. And then if it doesn't work out, we move on. And so when it didn't work out, I don't think anybody was that surprised. It was disappointing, but we kind of kept rolling over it. And, like, uh, MCA had not thought that Europe would understand Speedball Baby, apparently. That was, I think, the line that was given. Like, we were too, I don't know, out there. But, like, the home of avant-garde and Dadaism wouldn't understand. No. Our band. I don't know. So they didn't release the album here. Um, or overseas and so afterwards oh hello my light just went out sorry
0: these things do happen oh
1: but, my goodness um, anyway th- least you we got, got a phone. label that did you got the... <laughs> how's this yes that's so label, yeah a label a german label did release it and that gave us a real new lease they they released it overseas and we um went started touring all over the world and that yes. that gave us like a new life
0: and that's, and, and in the book, I mean, your, your European tour is quite intense. I mean, it's interesting because a lot of the time, I know. Jesus. It, it's, it's Sorry. Quite, no, it's good. It's good. Perhaps you're doing one of those energy-saving moments in the, I don't um...
1: know what I'm doing, <laughs> apparently, but I'm going to put these other lights on instead in case it goes off again. Apologies.
0: That's fine. That's fine. So, so you're slightly around that world that was the end of Brit pop, New Labour, things like that, did? But you're in America at this stage. Did you have Bill Clinton at this point in your kind of political life? What year are we talking about? Sort of the late '90s as we trundled up to the millennium.
1: Do I look crazy with this light?
0: No, it's good. It's very atmospheric. No, no, it's not scary. It, It just looks like it's it's no, it's quite atmospheric. Um okay. yes.
1: Um sorry what year are we talking about?
0: So I suppose you you're coming up to the the millennium sort of we were sort of wor- right. worried about the bug um planes dropping out of the um Oh the dry, right and all those things Y-T-K. and, and we we'd had that incredible period of I suppose in the UK, I wouldn't say it was incredible, but Britpop had suddenly made you know guitar bands cool again, from Sleeper mm-hmm. to Oasis, Blur, Pulp, Space, all those kind of bands. I didn't. I wondered how they sort of might have impacted on, on the um, on your band.
1: I mean, I did not feel anything for Oasis. Um, it didn't move me. Uh, I know it's sort of um, typical to say, but I liked Blur. Um, I know I'm not supposed to play into that rivalry, but. I did like Blur, um, but I really liked Elastica.
0: Right, um, yes.
1: So, you know, I thought their album, which I can't remember the name of, but you know what I mean.
0: I think it was, the, it was self-titled, I think, that first album. Yeah,
1: was fantastic. Um, yes. So that one was really exciting to me. Um, yes. The Dandy Warhols got big when they came over here, I think. I wasn't keenly aware of them at the time, but then later found them. But I'd say out of all those people, Elastica and Blur were the ones that I liked.
0: I think Nickelback was a bit later, was not they?
1: I don't know Nickelback.
0: They had one massive song, which kind of was was an angsty song about you know, glorifying being an alcoholic. I think, but it's kind of, <laughs> when you're when you're sixteen, you have to hear it, and then you think, oh yeah, if you're sixteen, you hear him singing about that angsty stuff you you might relate to it but when you get a bit older it's a bit tedious as well oh, Okay. So, yeah. so the the second album you're on the german label oh my god because in the book you you've you know an intense tour by the band going overseas so in the uk most people they have that five-year narrative they they have a single john Peel plays it they get a john Peel session <laughs> things are going well first album and you know the uk is tiny isn't it so every city and town has a little alternative indie night and they go around in their little transit van and does it and then the second album, the third album, they just want to kill each other. But the other thing that <laughs> gets a lot of bands off is tour in America because they just go, well, we went to America and then we split up because it just destroyed <laughs> them. Um, because of the- <laughs> So what's it like from being America, coming from America to coming into Europe?
1: Well, I mean, I was coming to first of all, starting the tour in England, like, this is where all the bands were that I loved, you know? I mean, they shaped me, like those bands we're talking about, um, all of them, you know? Um, So I was very excited, you know? Um, X-Ray Specs were really big for me, you know? I mean, like, just, it was a magical land. You lived in a magical land. And when I showed up, I couldn't believe I was now part of this, actually. Um, I know or I believe America sounds pretty exotic to people because it's so huge and a lot of cool stuff has come out of it. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of space between the coasts and um, there's a lot of like places that these days I'm not sure I'd want to be. Spend too much time. No. But like exploring uh, England was super exciting. And then going out further into other countries and then going to places I never thought I'd go, like Slovenia and Croatia. Um, I mean, there are a lot of crazy moments and a lot of scary moments as a woman, yes. for sure. I mean, but it was just endless. It just felt like endless potential, endless excitement, you know? The whole world was there.
0: Waiting. Yes. I it did it. I, I saw the um, your sort of tour schedule and sort of at that point your sort of exciting experience of crossing borders and going into Croatia, which is it was a bit like um, was it Midnight Express? It had that kind of. God, it's going to go terribly wrong because because as a young person, we all saw Midnight Express and then Betty Blue and stuff like that. So um, those films are ensconced in Wisconsin, our DNA. So um, yes, but anyway, you survived um, machine guns and being strip searched. So yeehaw. Yeah.
1: So. for us yeah but it does it does change you do understand like i w- i should have probably seen midnight express before i went <laughs> or maybe not because I might not, you know but you don't really at that age understand that like no you really don't want to go to jail in croatia like you really don't want to go because you don't know what that means you know mm-hmm. what i mean like he in new york we were all very like can i curse on this show
0: you can be, yes 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 feel free <laughs>
1: Free. Free. Buk, buk, buk. No, like, um, I mean, we we're very like, fuck the police. And, you know, there was a lot of riots around gentrification in Tompkins square park. There was the Tompkins square riots. Um, there wasn't a huge amount of fear. I mean, we were white kids, you know, like that we had a certain privilege we were walking around with that we didn't really recognize for sure. Mm-hmm. So, yes. um, so, but the rules seemed a little bit clearer, uh, in our minds, they're dicks. We get to fight and protest Sometimes we clash, but it's not that big a deal. Um, if you take that attitude into the rest of the world, you really don't know, and you can learn real, really the hard way. <laughs> so yes. it ended up okay.
0: <laughs> ended up... So when you came to do the third album, is this the blackout? Is this your third album? Is that the chronological kind of I have narrative?
1: To look at my... I I'm just wrote my discography. Do you want to know? I'm going to look yes. at it right now. So the
0: blackout okay, so black from, from discography is is the the last one on, on this in 2002.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's
0: What's the right. state of the band at this stage? Because the third album can be really tricky, can't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the first one, you know, it's always like, uh, I mean, we had put out a lot of EPs, singles and EPs before on PCB Records and Sympathy for the Record Industry and In the Red Records. Um, And those are really reputable, wonderful labels. And um, so we had already been putting out a lot of stuff. We kind of knew who we were. And when it came to put out the one on on MCA, Cinema, um, it was just about, like, what can we still do to be ourselves but maybe in a more concise bigger way, you know? And so like, I'm really proud of that album. There are a lot of, we never, we never did anything dumber to put it on the album, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, Ron Ward, the singer speedball baby just texted me and it ringed in, my, rang in my headphones. <laughs> um, but so afterwards uptight and 2000 and, and the blackout, those are full of great songs. I don't feel like we lost any steam if I'm honest. Um, I feel like there was almost a liberation afterwards, you know, um, to dig into being us more. Yeah, I think. That but was, did you
0: yeah. have a feeling when that album was complete, the third one, uh, the blackout, that the band, because sometimes with bands they they sort of feel that this isn't, you know, this is going to be it. There is no more, you know, once that album's done. Or did you not have that narrative in your mind at that stage?
1: i think i was falling out of the band i think i was changing i was outgrowing my role um i had entered like six years earlier maybe you know i was a very different person um i had a sense that things were changing in music around me in some ways i didn't want to be a part of the sort of angrier version like i remember playing with the yaya yaz at an early show at the mercury lounge and um it had been sort of a. I was already feeling very edgy about the whole thing, you know. I don't know what it was exactly. I think I was just outgrowing it, and I had like itchiness to get out. And um, I had blacked out my front tooth because I was thought that was cute, you know. And uh, and I was very like all of us were very confrontational from the stage, and it's it was good a good show. It was very intense, but then the yayaas yada went on, and Karen O oh was just like a ray of light, like this big beautiful smile and just like throwing out this positive energy and i was like wow that's that's different than what we've been seeing a lot in new york you know all our bands like uh, very posy very aloof in a way you know very of the time we were living in a very difficult dark new york
0: what happened when the strokes appeared did that change everything for you for the sort of music scene in New York? Because obviously in the UK, everyone loved The Strokes, didn't they?
1: Well, they've just done that documentary, right? And it's about Interpol, which the drummer in Interpol was a Speedball Baby fan and had come to New York. And that was like, uh, when he was quite young, that's not why he came to New York, but um, that's how I met him. And uh, then he played in my ex-boyfriend's band, and then he started or he joined or started Interpol, which is an amazing band, you know. And so it was Interpol, Yeah Yeahs, yeah, and the Strokes started to define this new era in New York of music. Yes. And I kind of felt like so that night when I saw Karen O at the bar, I kind of smiled at her with my blacked-out tooth, like all sweaty. I'm like, mm-hmm. and she kind of just looked, I don't know, scared or something. And I'm not saying she was scared, but I just felt like my vibe was maybe uh, it was time to move on. Do you know what I yes. mean? Like what I was doing felt old all of a sudden. It felt like there was this new thing that was coming in. And I think they're the best band to come out of New York in ages.
0: Yes, absolutely. Though I do love Interpol. Um, oh, yeah. God, I think that's such a great song. Oh, but, yeah. but then where do you meet Steve then and have a complete musical change? Where the, Where Because obviously the boyfriend that had been living with your mum's place has gone. Oh ages, ages oh ages
1: ago oh ages ago yeah ages, ages ago. ago ages ago oh <laughs> uh, yeah so um, where does steve
0: come because he was in blue um
1: he was um, in beat rodeo and suicide commandos yeah 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 um uh, we just met on the music scene probably at a party at matt's house you know um and got into a relationship and i think that the thing that actually did bust something open in me, and I hate to say it this way sometimes because I think it can sound reductive, but he had a daughter and I became a stepmother and she and I just really dug each other and formed this strong bond. And I think it brought out things in me, you know, especially about helping like a young woman who, you know, (laughs) through the world. And I had been through a lot and I, I had had a lot of, pain and loneliness when I was young um and uh and abuse and all these things so um I wanted very much to help her or support her in her journey and you know as corny as it might sound it did it did sort of shift my thinking like what do I want to be doing with my time I don't know that I want to be going around touring all the time and and that's like I'm always afraid that sounds like and then I became a mom and everything was better but it's definitely not what I'm saying Um, but it did open up parts of me that I wanted to have more in the front you know and I have another I have a son now so you know uh, it's just like the best art project I've ever gotten to do (laughs) yeah
0: well, I guess you were about thirty-three, thirty-five at that stage. So, you yeah, know, you can't—you can't be twenty-three all your life, can you? So,
1: <laughs> yes, also, you can't. No, you can't. <laughs> no, you angsty
0: can't. about, yeah, still taking <laughs> Betty Blue far too seriously, or something. <laughs> you know, I was go, i don't know. There's so many things about one's past that you kind of think, oh, that would be so embarrassing to watch now. For several reasons: a, it's probably not so good, but also, you know, you related too much to it, and it was like it wasn't that great, really. Was it? <laughs> But um, so that <laughs> so you just have to leave the memory. Don't go back and watch
1: sure, it. Sure, do not watch it again.
0: But then you make an album with. Well, you make two, and and two it's a albums, different vibe, isn't it? It's kind of got a great, some beautiful songs on it. So is this is, you know, is this just a great musical collaboration? And you find your voice.
1: Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll take that. All right. <laughs> I mean, they weren't. I don't think that I found I found exactly who I was supposed to be as a musician, but um, I literally found my voice in terms of starting to sing. And then I had already put out an album with a band, a band with Matt Verderay called the Ougliets. Oh yeah. And that's out there. So I did do some singing, but that was more from a like a young marble giants kind of vibe. Do you know the Moldy Peaches? Oh, young Marble Giants. Are... Oh
0: I love them. Oh I love them. Yeah. I don't know Moldy Peaches, but I do know the love the Young yeah. Marble Giants well.
1: Yeah, we do a we do um we do a Young Marble Giants uh cover on our on the Ougliets album, which is called Little One Arm. Um, And we were doing that during Speedball Baby. So I had sort of like, and I was playing drums and singing and we were just, you know, playing any instrument we needed together. But singing proper, like a real grown-up should, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I started to try to do with Steve. And then I think I did better later um, with a, a project called The Singing Club with Marcellus Hall from Railroad Jerk and Chris Maxwell um and then now i'm doing some music in england now that i've moved here with a um adam clark is a is a local musician in norwich and he's amazing mm. um i like to call him a local legend and yes. uh yeah yeah so now i for the first time actually feel like oh yeah i know what i can do with singing and it's really fun
0: cuz when you did your you did the follow up you did that first album with steve in 2202
1: yeah.
0: And then another one, didn't you, you showed yeah. me as well, which was, yeah. does that, it increases your sort of um, the musical sonic soundscape on that album, doesn't it? Did, were you feeling more confident about the musical direction you were going at that stage?
1: No, no, <laughs> I was following his musical direction, which I didn't own it. The one that I liked, the one that I felt was truest to me was a cover of Come Softly, which I felt really happy about um that's not to denigrate the music at all it's just to say i didn't know who i was making that music and then we were breaking up around the time that the second one finished i believe right um, cert- like we had to show up to do the music video in shifts <laughs> that kind of thing so you know that's life that's okay
0: no um, god
1: I, yes I, yeah i bear no grudge at all but i didn't know who i was musically at that point i would say except except that i really thrive on singing harmonies and we did a lot of that and it's something because i grew up loving x the band x oh, you know yes x, yeah yeah Cervanca, yeah. she ended up writing the forward for my book and reading it on the audiobook which is so beautiful of her. oh
0: yes that's that's right isn't it yes yeah. so this is all part of the x guys john doe
1: oh it? nice yeah john doe xine and john those their harmonies sort of defined what i loved about music for the longest time so yes. i'm kind of dissonant but romantic, but fucked up, you know, just, I love a harmony, love a harmony. So well, absolutely.
0: I... <laughs> Rom- romantic melancholia is my favorite sort Ooh. of go to stuff. That's why I oh, love yeah. The Carpenters, really. But uh, oh, yeah. there's a whole lot love of The
1: Carpenters. Growing up, I loved The Carpenters. I loved know. that album. Yeah. R-
0: rainy still Days do. and Mondays. Yeah, no, they're lyrically. Oh, yeah. I think if you like The Carpenters, you're always going to like Joy Division and The Smiths. That's my theory. Mm, mm, so. <laughs> mm,
1: mm. Joy Division, New Order, ugh, all those are yes. so important to me.
0: So as we come to 20, the, the next decade, Okay, twenty, twenty tens. What? What's your? What? How do? How does this shape you then? Because obviously, you've got a. Did you say you got a son, but no band? And then, sort of, the end of a, another uh, of another. I say that as if you have had loads of relationships. I don't know, but you ended that relationship. <laughs> well, you
1: read the book, you know, you know something.
0: <laughs> so yes, so so yes. So how do you navigate? Because it's often I do find uh, I fan that with a lot of artists. I mean, there is that kind of you're in that moment and you're doing really well, but then the next decade can be really tricky. You know, look at David Bowie. Okay, the sixties, his work was pretty awful. Seventies, he gets it. Eighties, not so good but a lot of a lot of artists a bit like that they they're 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 absolutely hot on one bit and then there's a new scene you know a new wave of 16 18 year olds come along and suddenly there's a new you know new kids in town and also they all they all look so young i remember going to glassmarie festival thinking i mean everyone oh look at the kids they're so young it's like they don't get any, they they stay 16, 18. We just get a year older and um, because, the, you know, the new, you know, the rite of passage, go to Glastonbury Festival, you know, and you do that. But, yeah. you know, it's like we just get much older and go, they all look so young. It's like, no, that that's what they look like. We're just old people. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so how do you navigate that next? Because obviously music is, you know, designed to destroy the artist really, isn't it? Let's face it. Right.
1: Well, do you know what? I um, might be an idiot. Let's just put that out there. But I have long been comforted by uh, my friend Matt from Speedball Baby used to say, uh, he used to quote uh, the possibly apocryphal um, quote from Lawrence of Arabia. You know, I think they I think it's the scene in the movie where they're torturing him and everything. And they're like, why don't you why aren't you suffering? Why don't you care? I, I don't know. I'm probably misquoting. But but he says. The secret is not to care. And, you know, that's easier said than done. But I believe that I just keep shape-shifting. Like, it's not about—I might be delusional. Like, maybe somebody will, will not at some point listen to any version of anything that I have to say. But I don't—I'm My I'm deciding not to care. Do you know what I mean? To some extent. That doesn't mean that if they don't want to publish it or whatever, I'm not demoralized and I don't feel angsty about it. Um, but it, I have been a photographer, writer, a musician, and they all lead me to the same place. I want to talk about the human experience. I want to explore the human experience, especially being a woman. Um, you know, they're just different ways to do something that I find meaningful. And, um, that's deep dive into this thing we call a heart and a soul and a mind. And, um, you know, it would be really crappy to be be considered irrelevant because of your age at some point. But I'm certainly, I learned young that the gatekeepers are full of shit, do you know? And so I've taken that lesson with me, considering that Harvey Weinstein was a gatekeeper for a million young actresses. You have to say, oh, well, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I'll find a way. I'll, I'll make a community of people who are making art and they care about what I'm saying. Uh, you know, there are yes. different ways to the pen, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of interesting about the gatekeepers because in... It used to be like there was three music in the UK, you know, like Science Melody Maker, NME. Yeah. Then we had you yeah. know, people like John Peel, Janice Long, Annie Nightingale. and But at the same time, you know, it was still, it was, ba- it was good, but it was not always good, because there are people who didn't get through those gatekeepers. The music press hated them, or they wouldn't get pl- even played on, even in radio. I mean, they were never going to get played on daytime. But, you know, there was still always those kind of potential barriers if you didn't quite fit... Something you know, like look about all about Eve, great band, but they they got slated by everybody, didn't they? Um, so yes, it, it's never that easy, and the gatekeepers somehow don't always take complete responsibility of what they say and do, and who they choose or who they decide to mm. to reject. But then, did mm. you find a new you? You'd, I don't think you used the word chameleon, but you might have done. Um, did you then find a new you then in in sort of the last? years a different sort of almost like you know shedding a, a layer or skin and then sort of be having another path in life.
1: I can't believe you just said that because I just wrote a piece for The Observer and it talks about moving from New York to Norwich and over and over in the past decade you know Maybe it's getting older and continuing to make art and trying to hone your skills and your view of the world, having a child, having a relationship that's very powerful and meaningful and and nurturing, Um, all these things, moving to a different country, all these things. I feel like I'm continually shedding skin now, shedding like exoskeleton, you know, the hard bits. And um, I had to get out of New York. I did not know what that place had in store for me. And I'm from New York. Um so and I think that calcified me in a long, for a long time as a New Yorker. You know what I mean? Um I'm really excited about this idea of constantly shedding your exoskeleton, you know. Um I feel it very much right now.
0: Yes. It's it's good. Man, did you and did you sort of find any kind of spiritual kind of path because most people then sort of discover or start a practice which is is you know, might seem quite not huge, but, you know, it's kind of a, it's new habits that can suddenly change one's life quite considerably, whether it's kind of eating better, not drinking, not taking drugs, mm. going <laughs> to the gym, you know, learning a new skill, discovering something, just feeling a bit kinder in the world can have a massive mm. impact on, on one's kind of mm. psyche and their sort of the, the way that other people view them in the world as well.
1: Mm Hmm, I wish I could be a person that likes to go to the gym. Um, I definitely don't drink as much whiskey anymore, um, or uh, vodka. Um, But I, uh, you know, I have a real, uh, I have a problem with organized religion, like a serious problem with organized religion. So that's never going to be my thing. And um, I think I would like to meditate more. My husband does, seems to really work out for him. Um, but, I, you know, I just am a person who always likes to do. So for me, writing has become that, you know, um, writing and learning now how to write rather than just, blah, you know, yes. exploding, exploding with words, um, learning that craft and learning how to let get out of my own way to get what's in my head and heart onto the paper that has become super exciting, and that's the. New, I would say that's my spiritual practice. Actually,
0: it, it it's how is. I
1: consider. Yeah, it's how I consider life constantly.
0: Well, there's a lot of people talk about writing in the journal, but before the journal, Lynn, when did you get the idea to write the book? <laughs>
1: well, I, uh, you know, I used to. T- I have a friend called Miriam Shore. Um, she's an actor. She was in Hedwig and the Angry Inch. She's a fantastic, funny, smart, whip-smart woman who lived in the 90s in New York and knows all the same things I do from a slightly different scene, uh, which is more like a gay club scene where they performed. Um, but we would laugh our asses off, and I would tell her stories about like being chased down Ludlow Street by Hare Krishna skinheads, and I would tell her about, you know, all these ridiculous things that happened. And we would also talk about the local characters like Hot Dog and the Colonel and Floyd, and we just shake our heads kind of at what we'd just been through. Like the intensity of living through the 80s and 90s in New York was quite something. And at the time, you're young and full of endless energy. But we just, and and we talked a lot about the space or lack of it for women in that scene, surprisingly, right? Because we're all in a subculture together and we're like, we hate the straight world, we hate racism, classism, sexism, but then it's all there. All the yes. ills of the world are right there <laughs> with us, yes. you know, we're all brainwashed to, to different degrees. So we would talk about these stories and she said, you have to write them down. I said, eh, and she said, no, no, you have to write them down. So I started writing them and she would read them so generously over and over and over, until finally I just sort of like put this tome in front of her like, boom, and it was a manuscript of all these stories and she started crying. And I, I was like, I was like, did I do good, Bob? And, uh, you know, and so it went from there. She really gave me so much encouragement. She read it over and over, tip to tail. And it changed a million times. It was a hard-won <laughs> manuscript in the end, but that's why I started it.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Actually, Susan, you mentioned Ludlow Street there. Suzanne Vega does an amazing... Have you heard that song she does, Ludlow Street?
1: I think so, but I'm not familiar with it off the tip of my head.
0: Yeah, I think it was just where... Because her brother kind of, I think, dies... But there was a they sounded like there was a bit of a party house there. It was just always when you mentioned that, I thought, oh yes, that's that's. Well, quite Ludlow a thing.
1: Street, Leather Street had Ludlow Street Cafe, which Steve might have talked about because they played there a lot. That was a big music scene. Um, it had a couple of abandoned storefronts at the time that they would put on shows in. Um, there was a lot of creativity. I think there was even John Cage, John Cale, Dan. I always mix up those two. <laughs> which one was the <laughs> yeah. Velvet Underground? The, the latter. Yes. I think they did a lot of work in Apartment on Ludlow Street. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of, that was a very creative block.
0: And then with the book, one, when it went out there and went to the printers and you said, that's it, I'm not going to be able to change it, did that feel quite like, wow, that was stunning just to have that release and like, well, that's it, I've told the story, I can let go of it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's really well said. Absolutely. In a way. Yeah. Except now I talk about it all the time, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, yeah, and terrifying. And sometimes I'm like, why right before it was going to press, it's like, I would wake up in a flop sweat in the middle of the night and say, what the hell are you doing? You like to be private. What's wrong with you? Why you're an idiot. And I just kept saying, I'm, this is me talking to myself in the middle of the night, just stop. It's going to be okay. (laughs) You know, there's reasons you're doing this. It's important to talk about and be honest. And, So it went back and forth. I had a lot of those moments. I think that's pretty normal.
0: Yes. And did you... Because I know that... um... Was it Paul Simpson from The Swans? No, The Wild Swans. He'd sort of recently brought a book out as well. And, and obviously there's kind of been issues with the band's band that he was in. So yeah. I remember him feeling quite anxious about it because he was wondering how, you know, various people were going yeah. to leave it. Did you also have or have you already gone through that process of giving it to people that you think, have they checked it or have you just said, no, this is my story and it's going to go whatever? Because that's your perspective on the situation. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Combination. The- Combination. Because the sto- the book starts with a pretty hardcore story that, you know, um, I guess some people could say it doesn't show Ron in the greatest light because it dives right into the harder aspects of his life, which have to do with addiction and violence. Um, and I will, you know, I'm not apt to hurt anybody, but if I'm not going to tell an honest story, what the hell's the point? So I, I did write it, fit a complete, and then get his blessing gingerly, you know, and he, you know, he said, totally, that's, you know, I, I might feel differently about a couple of things, but that's what happened. And I support you telling your story, which come on, you know, like that, that's ultimate generosity. So yes. I did for those, for those, that is the truth. Like my story will be different than it, his story will be different than Matt's story. That's just life. Um, but i took great pains to make sure did this happen you know what i mean and i like to think i'm as hard on myself as i am on anybody in it yes. or as vulnerable so
0: um do you oh, when, when writing about your you know younger self and you know your childhood to your teens and through your 20s do you, do you sort of sometimes do you, did you sort of look at that as a, a as yourself as a sort of almost a third person like a different character and, and feel kind of like Sort of sometimes a bit sad or a bit depressed about thinking, God, that person, mm. that happens also to be you, what they had, to, what they were going through and what they were feeling. Did that, was that hard at times?
1: Well, you know, there's a part in the book uh, where I sort of acknowledge that relationship about me to my younger self, um, you know, writing about sexual abuse and then coming in in the book. Um, As the older woman, you know, more grown, wanting to rescue that girl from that scene, you know, wanting to step in and wanting most of all to show her that she is a queen and she is worthy of um, adoration, not humility. You know, yes. I mean, that's very much the message that I wish I could have imparted to myself as a young girl going through hideous things, which many young people, um, maybe disproportionately women go through and, um, you know, entering the world of sex uh, through abuse or, um, you know, undermine being undermined. So that was a sense of like when I look back at that girl. First of all, I can't believe how some people will treat young women. I can't believe that that's how they want to treat young women, you know? Yes. um so objectively, it's um, quite a condemnation about uh, society and human nature. I don't know if it's human nature or conditioning. It's probably conditioning. Um, but the other thing is i do I do feel sad for that girl because it took me years. To feel anything like um, you are a regal queen who needs to be treated well, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes God, yeah it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? Have you read um Adele Berthe's kind of kind of memoir of her she's done oh. she's done the first one and then she wrote the second one quite recent. I don't know, she hasn't done it quite chronologically, but the one that came out recently was her childhood. And um, it's kind of interesting how she also processed an awful lot of her younger days and what happened in her life. It's it's quite a, it's quite a harrowing read, really. So um, how, how does one not become so damaged, you become a bitter person in later life, I think is one of the great tricks or mysteries of the world, really.
1: Well, I think that A lot of that anger that took me to hardcore matinees for years was that anger about having been treated like a piece of garbage, like being treated like um, a non-human to be used, you know, uh, in a sexual situation. Um, It took me ages to to take back some sense of self. I'm still working on it. Um, Yeah, I think we that is the that will be my biggest journey in life to heal that part of myself you know but the more we talk about it and more we're honest about it i really do think there's a lot of power in that because that yes. shame was never mine to have you know
0: absolutely no and and what was your relationship like with your mother and and father over those kind of through through parts of your adult life you know once you left mm-hmm. home? did they did you sort of get those sort of slightly more harmonious
1: I have complicated relations with both of them. Um, My mother's a deeply loving, empathetic, funny, smart woman. Um, I think it was probably pretty scary to have a daughter who had decided she wanted to do everything that men were doing around her. And uh, we're just very different characters, you know, and a lot of depression runs in my family. And I've always been uh, real determined to run away from that and address it in myself. So, you know, our styles are very different. We love each other, but we aren't, I wouldn't say, similar people. Like, I don't think or I know she would never really want to write a book that explores this stuff, you know. And so I have to just accept that and leave that alone. Um, My dad went... When I was a kid, he was magical. Like I, call, I referred to him as a unicorn dad, just full of, you know, uh, magic, really. Uh, we were quite close. Then he became a bit eccentric. Then he became <laughs> um, more difficult. And now we don't really have much of a relationship anymore. Right. Um, God. Yeah. So that's that makes me sad. But, you know, lots of things can make you sad. You can also work your way through them. Yeah. absolutely
0: i mean just and just lastly if you could oh god if you could have whispered something to your 16 year old self what would you oh god so much isn't there, there um you probably said quite a lot but is there anything particular that you would have just whispered in their ear even if they ignored you
1: mm, she definitely would have ignored me <laughs> <laughs> um your vulnerability is your greatest strength Just don't let people use it against you. Yes.
0: Jeezy crazy. There you go. Well, look, this has been amazing in so many ways.
1: You're amazing. You're a fantastic (laughs) interview and so fun to and let's lean out the window right now and wave at each other because we're across the street.
0: (laughs) This is also strange, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Well, God, that that is extra. I'll have to um, yeah, this there's quite a few cards. Yeah, because I get quite a
1: lot of links.
0: Yes, there's quite a lot of things, actually. I've, you wouldn't believe how many things on my bookshelf that you'd be kind of, you'd probably vice versa, Though you know, just like, you know, that whole world of, you know, that New York world, which I've sort of done a lot of interviews with. It's kind of weird, actually, because there was a great film that came out last year, I think, When Will I Be Famous? Did you ever see that about a New York artist who no one ever heard of? But they did it so well. I'll have to send you some of these What's little bits. What's it oh, It sounds but,
1: familiar. When
0: it was a fantastic little film. It was one of those ones that someone obviously wanted to make. And um, there was, mm. there's just a lot of kind of things I think, oh, you must, you must know that, or you must have come across that one. But, um, yeah. Well,
1: you know, New York, like, let me just say one more thing, if I may, is that I've been thinking about this lately. It's like, it's interesting because, If you're talking about this kind of music, not, you know, hip hop or any number of other subculture music that came out of like South Bronx and and other areas of New York, which are fantastic movements. If you're talking about um, punk and alternative music in New York, you're really talking about the Lower East Side and the East Village of Manhattan. And uh, that's a very small area. It's not rambling. It's not sprawling. It's not. It's really condensed. So this was like an area that in the 90s, for sure, the police sort of let police itself. You know, mm-hmm. it's the area of total diversity. You know, it's the area that all immigrants in the old days entered through. Some stayed, some left. It's it's just everything everywhere all at once, if I may. And, um, you know, that creates a certain situation where There's just so much to go on. Like I said, that story in the book about Jean-Michel Basquiat and how it funded Matt's studio could only have happened in New York. Do you know? And so, And it it probably could only have happened at a time where not everybody was so savvy. Like you could look anything on you. You Google, you know, what's in front of you. So it was like a hotbed of intense experiences,
0: really. So uh, did you come across you would have come across but did, did you get quite close to that world of keith Herron and think you know his kind of artistic movement as well
1: well matt was working for andy warhol silkscreening so right. he was very much in that world i was a little too young i just missed it yes. but, he, but he was steeped in it
0: And we will leave it there. We've just got a few more minutes of chat. But anyway, that was me in conversation with Ali Smith, talking about her new memoir that's just come out, The Ballad of Speedball Baby, talking about her life in music and much more. And um, I do believe she's got a website, which I'll put in the notes below. But the book, which is available from all good bookshops, and it's also online. I know, indeed it is, which is quite a bargain. Anyway, do check it out and buy it and uh, enjoy because it, it is a page turner. Also, um, yes, if you want to contact me, David Easter, on The C86 Show, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? Very lucky. Anyway, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, True.
1: Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.